Good afternoon. Thank you all very much for coming. My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Associate Director of the Foreign Policy Studies Program here at the Cato Institute. And it's my pleasure to welcome you here today to our book forum for Matthew Krennig's book, Exporting the Bomb, Technology Transfer and the Spread of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, I think it's an important book. A lot of times you see a new book on nuclear weapons and ask, haven't all the questions about nuclear weapons already been asked and addressed uh, in detail? But the answer, I think, clearly that emerges from reading this book is that they had not. Uh, and there are indeed, I think, additional questions raised by uh, Krennig's research that opened doors for, for uh, propitious future study. So I'll go ahead and introduce the author. He'll present uh, the book, and then we have uh, two esteemed commentators who will offer criticism. Matthew Krennig is an assistant professor in the Department of Government at Georgetown University and a research affiliate with the Project on Managing the Atom at Harvard University. He's the author of the aforementioned Exporting the Bomb and co-author of the Handbook of National Legislatures from Cambridge University Press last year. His writings on international politics have appeared in a wide variety of both academic and popular publications, including the American Political Science Review, Journal of Conflict Resolution, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, USA Today, and the Washington Post. Dr. Krennic has also served as a strategist on the policy planning staff in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, where he received OSD's award for outstanding achievement. He's also a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Please join me in welcoming Matthew Krennic. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, uh, Justin. It's really a pleasure to be here at the Cato Institute. Uh, I'd like to begin my remarks today by telling a story. Uh, on November the 8th, 1956, Golda Meir and Shimon Peres, two key figures in the Israeli government, uh, flew from, Paris, or from Tel Aviv to Paris uh, to meet with French Prime Minister Guy Mollet and other members of the French government. Uh, now, during this meeting, the Israelis made an unusual request. They asked France to help Israel acquire nuclear weapons. Now, everything that we think we know about international politics would say that the French should have laughed the Israelis out of the room. And we think that states are interested primarily in survival, and being relatively more powerful than other states is the best way to do that. So helping another state acquire nuclear weapons, a weapon that could one day threaten your own existence, seems to fly in the face of this logic. Nevertheless, the French said yes. From 1959 to 1965, France provided Israel with sensitive nuclear assistance, and by 1967, Israel is widely believed to have constructed its first nuclear weapon. So why did France help Israel acquire nuclear weapons? And this wasn't a one-time event. These kind of transfers of sensitive nuclear materials and technology have regularly occurred. So the question becomes more broadly, why do states provide sensitive nuclear assistance to non-nuclear weapon states, essentially contributing to the international spread of nuclear weapons? Now, there is something of a conventional wisdom out there that says that states will do this for economic reasons, uh, that if a country's in dire economic circumstances, say like North Korea today, that they'd be willing to sell anything, including sensitive nuclear technology, in order to earn hard currency. Uh, now, I argue and uh, find in my research that this conventional wisdom is essentially incorrect, and that rather these sensitive nuclear transfers are driven by a strategic logic. Uh, my argument, in short, is that the spread of nuclear weapons threatens powerful states more than it threatens weak states, and that this leads to three strategic conditions under which 
countries are most likely to export sensitive nuclear materials and technology. Okay, so the rest of my talk is going to continue in five parts. Uh, first, I'm going to explain what I mean by sensitive nuclear assistance. Next, I'm going to turn to the previous research to see what it is we know about this phenomenon. Third, I'm going to present my argument, this uh, kind of strategic logic of nuclear assistance. Next, I'll present empirical evidence. I'll look at a Cold War case of nuclear transfers, uh, France's assistance to Israel's nuclear program. And then I'll fast forward uh, to the present to look at a more recent case and look at uh, Pakistan's transfers with the help of A.Q. Khan, a Pakistani nuclear scientist, to Iran, Libya, and North Korea. And finally, I'll conclude with some implications for uh, U.S. foreign policy. Okay, so what do I mean by sensitive nuclear assistance? Uh, by sensitive nuclear assistance, I mean the state-sponsored transfer of nuclear materials and technology critical for the construction of a nuclear weapons program to a non-nuclear weapons state. Now, a couple of these terms uh, bear further elaboration. Uh, I focus on uh, state-sponsored transfers. Uh, so there have been some cases of uh, individuals smuggling small amounts of fissile material across borders. Uh, I, I don't focus on these instances, but rather focus on uh, state-sponsored uh, transfers. Uh, fortunately, I, I think that uh, all of the most important cases have been state-sponsored, including the um, AQ Khan transfers to Iran, Libya, and North Korea, and that's a subject I'll return to later in the talk. Um, and I look at transfers to uh, non-nuclear weapon states. Okay, so uh, nuclear weapon states sometimes transfer sensitive nuclear materials and technology amongst themselves. Uh, but the, the puzzle motivating this research is re really why countries would provide a nuclear assistance to a non-nuclear weapon state, essentially giving that state a capability uh, to become a, a nuclear power. So I focus on transfers to non-nuclear weapon states. Okay. Um, so what do I mean by uh, nuclear technology critical for the construction of a nuclear weapons program? Well, I look at essentially three types of transfers. Uh, countries that help other countries design nuclear weapons or providing sensitive nuclear assistance. I don't think uh, that's uh, terribly controversial. Um, but uh, experts uh, recognize that the most difficult part of constructing a nuclear weapon is actually acquiring the weapons-grade fissile material, the highly enriched uranium or the separated plutonium that forms the core of the nuclear device. Uh, so I also focus on uh, quantities of significant transfers of weapons-grade fissile material. And then I, I also focus on uh, transfers of sensitive fuel cycle facilities, the uranium enrichment plutonium reprocessing facilities uh, that could be used to uh, produce weapons-grade fissile material. So my analysis excludes civilian nuclear assistance, so countries that help other countries uh, build research reactors, mine for uranium, allow foreign students to study physics in their universities, aren't providing sensitive nuclear assistance uh, as I define it. Now I'll be the first one to point out that the line between civilian and sensitive assistance is sometimes fuzzy in practice, uh, but there is something of a conventional wisdom that once you get to the sensitive fuel cycle facilities, that's where you start to get into a real proliferation threat, and so my definition follows this uh, kind of conventional wisdom. And then finally, why states help other states develop uh, bombers, ballistic missiles uh, that could one day be used to deliver nuclear weapons to their intended target uh, is an interesting subject, but it's beyond the scope of my analysis. Okay, so we know what sensitive nuclear assistance is. Uh, when has it occurred? Well, we can see looking at this list that these kind of transfers of sensitive nuclear materials and technology uh, have occurred pretty regularly uh, since uh, the beginning of the nuclear era. Uh, so we can see, uh, looking at the bottom of the screen, the recent Pakistani transfers with the help of uh, AQ Khan to Iran, Libya, and North Korea. Uh, looking further up the screen, we can see that the uh, bomb design that AQ Khan was shopping around was originally a gift from the Chinese. And looking all the way up at the top of the screen, we can see the story with which I began my talk, uh, French assistance to Israel in the 50s and 60s. Okay, so these kind of transfers have been going on for the better, uh, you know, for the past uh, 60 years or so. Uh, what do we know about them? So 
So I, I won't belabor the point on this slide, but the, the bottom line here is that there really has been no systematic uh, research on this subject. Uh, there have been uh, policy studies and, and journalism devoted to specific cases. Uh, the, re the recent AQCon transfers in particular have, has been the subject of a number of uh, best-selling books. Um, and there's been a lot of academic research on nuclear weapons proliferation, but almost all of this research is focused on the demand side of the equation. Why do countries want nuclear weapons? Why do they pursue programs? Why do they give them up? Uh, but there hasn't been any systematic research on, on the supply side, which in, in a way I think is the more puzzling question. Why would countries help other countries uh, develop nuclear weapons? Okay. So to try to uh, advance our, our knowledge of this phenomenon, um, I first developed this kind of strategic uh, logic of nuclear assistance. And uh, there are a number of uh, propositions, strategic conditions that I identify, but they all flow from a simple basic insight. And that insight uh, is that the spread of nuclear weapons uh, threatens relatively powerful states more than relatively weak states. Okay, uh, so first, what do I mean by, by relatively powerful and relatively weak? Well, I mean in relation to the potential uh, nuclear weapons state. Uh, so a country that has the ability to project power over uh, a potential nuclear weapon state, the ability to uh, uh, invade that state, put boots on the ground, a real kind of power projection uh, capability, are more threatened when that country acquires nuclear weapons than a state that lacks that capability. Okay, so this is a relative definition of power. So if you take a Iran as a potential nuclear weapon state, countries that are relatively powerful to Iran are, are countries that would have the ability to project power over Iran. So that can include, uh, could include any number of, of regional states uh, that could potentially uh, project power over Iran. It would also include a country like the United States which has global power projection capabilities. Okay, so relatively weak states are all other states in the world, states that couldn't conceivably um, project power over Iran. Okay, so the spread of nuclear weapons is worse for relatively powerful states. Why do I say this? Well, first, it deters military intervention. Uh, relatively powerful states like to use the ability uh, to uh, sometimes like to intervene to uh, secure their interests militarily. But if a country has nuclear weapons, uh, it's much more difficult to do that. They're deterred from uh, intervening. Uh, not only do countries not get to use the actual uh, use of military force to their advantage, they don't even get to use uh, the threat of force to their advantage. Uh, we know that uh, threats, um, in order to be effective, must be credible. Uh, but the threat to use military force against a, a nuclear weapon state uh, is not very credible. So a country's uh, coercive advantage against nuclear weapon states uh, is reduced. Uh, third, the spread of nuclear weapons could potentially pull these uh, nuclear powers into regional crises uh, to the degree that... Uh, uh, the acquisition of nuclear weapons leads the new nuclear weapon state to be uh, emboldened, uh, perhaps more aggressive, leading to nuclear crises. Uh, power projecting states, relatively powerful states, precisely because they have the ability to put boots on the ground uh, in that state, could potentially be uh, drawn into uh, any conflict that that uh, uh, proliferation spurs. Uh, fourth, because the spread of nuclear weapons is important for all these reasons to relatively powerful states, they must pay attention to it uh, so um, they, to try to stop it and then also to, to monitor uh, the, the new nuclear state. So these are uh, diplomatic military intelligence resources uh, going to the problem of proliferation that aren't going to other national goals. Uh, fifth, and uh, finally, the spread of nuclear weapons threatens alliance cohesion. Uh, powerful states uh, like to use... Uh, their, their military power, not only to threaten other states, but also to uh, promise protection to other states. And that's another source of, of strategic uh, leverage. Uh, so relatively powerful states can uh, offer the promise of, of military protection as, as uh, uh, a foreign policy tool. Um, but as nuclear weapons spread, it becomes uh, much more uh, difficult to do that. Uh, countries that have their own uh, nuclear arsenal have uh, some degree of security independence, are less reliable, are less... Um, dependent on the offer of military protection. Okay. 
Uh, so for all these reasons, the spread of nuclear weapons uh, threatens relatively powerful states. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, uh, but I think some of the most important uh, uh, causes or effects of proliferation. Uh, on the other hand, uh, relatively powerful states uh, aren't threatened, uh, or relatively weak states aren't threatened in the same way. Uh, so relatively weak states aren't deterred from intervening militarily as nuclear weapons spread. Uh, by definition, they're too weak to intervene militarily, uh, so that's not a strategic cost that they really need to consider. Uh, second, it doesn't reduce the effectiveness of their course of diplomacy. Again, they're too weak, uh, by definition, to credibly threaten military coercion. Uh, third, uh, they couldn't be pulled into these regional crises. Uh, they lack the ability to project power uh, into the region. Uh, fourth, because uh, nuclear weapons is less threatening to them, they, need, they don't need to devote as much strategic attention to it. Uh, and fifth, it doesn't threaten to uh, erode their alliance cohesion in the same way. Again, they're, they're too weak to promise military protection to other states. Okay. So for all these reasons, the spread of nuclear weapons is more threatening to these relatively powerful states than it is to relatively weak states. Uh, but moreover, uh, to the degree that the spread of nuclear weapons threatens uh, relatively powerful states, the spread of nuclear weapons can, in certain circumstances, actually benefit uh, these relatively weak states. Uh, these relatively uh, weak states uh, can benefit to the degree that the spread of nuclear weapons constrains other more powerful rivals. Okay. So from this uh, simple insight... Uh, that uh, relatively powerful states have a lot more to worry about when nuclear weapons spread. I derive uh, three propositions about the conditions under which countries are most likely to provide transfers. Okay, so first, the less uh, powerful a state is relative to a potential recipient, the more likely a state is to provide nuclear assistance to the state. Uh, and the logic's uh, pretty simple, that states don't want to constrain themselves. So states that are relatively powerful uh, relative to a potential recipient aren't going to help that country acquire nuclear weapons. Uh, the less powerful it is relative to that state, the more likely it will be to do so. Uh, second, precisely because nuclear weapons uh, can constrain the conventional military freedom of action of powerful states, uh, states will be m more likely to provide nuclear assistance uh, to a state with which they share a common enemy. And third and finally, because uh, superpowers, states like the United States, uh, like the Soviet Union during certain periods in the Cold War, states that have global power projection capabilities are threatened by the spread of nuclear weapons anywhere. Uh, so these states not only uh, refrain from providing nuclear assistance themselves, they actually go on the offensive and try to uh, prevent other states from providing nuclear assistance. Uh, and I argue that they're more uh, successful in these attempts uh, in relation to, to countries that are uh, kind of dependent on them. Uh, so states that rely on a superpower security guarantee for their own security are going to be more likely to judge that p any potential benefit of providing nuclear assistance is outweighed by the cost of antagonizing a superpower patron. Whereas on the other hand, a state that uh, for whatever reason is less vulnerable to this kind of superpower pressure, doesn't depend on a superpower for their core security needs, uh, will be more likely to participate in these transactions. Okay. Uh, so now I'm going to turn to some empirical evidence. Uh, and in the book, I uh, consider a number of different types of evidence. I, I first perform a, a systematic a statistical analysis uh, and uh, find support for these hypotheses that, uh, on average, uh, these characteristics are uh, associated with likelihood to provide assistance. But I also look at a number of uh, case studies. Uh, so I look at uh, Soviet, the Soviet Union's assistance to China uh, from 1958 to 1960. I looked at China's assistance to Pakistan uh, in the 1980s. Um, and I also look at a number of uh, cases where assistance uh, could have occurred but didn't. Uh, so to compare the cases where countries don't provide assistance to cases where they do. Uh, so I look at why Israel, uh, despite the capability to provide nuclear assistance since about the late 1960s, uh, refrains from providing uh, assistance as I define it. I look at why India uh, refrains from providing assistance. 
Uh, but today I'm going to focus on, on two of the more important cases in the book. And the first is uh, Israel's nuclear program. And uh, in this uh, chapter in the, in the book, I compare France's decision to help Israel uh, with the United States' decision not only not to help Israel, uh, but to try to prevent uh, French-Israeli cooperation. Okay, so what, what happened in this case? Uh, well, briefly, from uh, 1959 to 1965, uh, France provided Israel uh, with sensitive nuclear assistance. Uh, France built the Demona reactor, the plutonium-producing reactor. Um, it also built the underground plutonium reprocessing facility uh, at, the, at Demona, uh, used to separate the plutonium uh, to produce nuclear weapons. Uh, the French invited Israeli scientists to uh, France's uh, first nuclear weapons tests in, in 1960. And according to some accounts, uh, France transferred uh, nuclear weapon designs to Israel. Okay, in, in the same time period, uh, you know, uh, Israel actually uh, wasn't, or France actually wasn't Israel's first choice. They had first turned to the United States for help, and the United States was willing to provide some limited assistance uh, uh, under the Adams for Peace program. Israel was actually the second country in the world after Turkey to sign up for Adams for Peace, so the United States provided a research reactor. Uh, but Israel uh, asked for uh, higher level assistance, uh, and the United States uh, refused. Uh, so uh, Israel turned to France. And then later, as the United States uh, got wind, uh, of what was going on, of, of this cooperation. Uh, the United States uh, intervened, uh, and President Kennedy, uh, pictured here in particular, uh, put a lot of pressure on both sides to try to uh, prevent uh, the proliferation. Uh, most famously, uh, Kennedy imposed this system uh, of inspections on the Israelis where American scientists went uh, to, to inspect the Demona reactor to try to make sure that nothing uh, was going on. And, and in essence, the, the Israelis uh, kind of duped the inspectors, um, had uh, walled off the underground plutonium reprocessing facility. The American inspectors were unable to uh, recognize the extent to which the Demona reactor uh, represented a proliferation threat. Okay, so how can we uh, explain this, this different uh, pattern? Uh, why was France, France willing to help Israel, and why was the United States not only not willing to help, but uh, trying to prevent Israel from acquiring nuclear weapons? Well, so let's uh, begin by looking at the kind of strategic assessments from uh, both countries' points of view. And the first thing we'd have to do, I would argue, is, is look at these countries' uh, relative power. So looking at first from the United States' point of view, the United States had the ability to project power uh, over Israel, as I define it. So the United States, if you look through, uh, as, I, as I do in the book, at the way intelligence analysts and policymakers viewed the possibility of nuclear weapons spreading to Israel, uh, the United States was very concerned about Israel acquiring nuclear weapons uh, for all the reasons that I laid out before. Uh, they were worried that it could constrain their conventional military freedom of action in the region. Uh, they were worried that it could lead to uh, further uh, proliferation in the region that would further constrain U.S. Uh, freedom of action. They were worried that it could lead to uh, conflict uh, in the region between Israel and its neighbors, uh, that the United States would be forced to intervene uh, in the conflict. Um, they were worried that Israel would become a, a, a less uh, reliable uh, ally if it acquired nuclear weapons. Uh, so just uh, a couple of examples here. Uh, in a State Department working group report to Secretary of State Dean Rusk, uh, the State Department estimated, quote, as programs developing sophisticated weapons come to fruition, the ability of the United States to control any hostilities which might occur between Israel and the United Arab Republic will decrease, and the United States will have less freedom of action to pursue unilateral means to secure its interests, end quote. Um, okay, so the United States... Uh, saw significant strategic consequences, negative consequences to Israel acquiring nuclear weapons, and for this reason was unwilling to, to help Israel. 
Now, France viewed the situation uh, very differently. Uh, now, France, uh, I argue, really lacked the ability to effectively project power in the Middle East uh, during this region, uh, during this uh, time period. We can talk about this more in the Q&A. Some people may, might ask, well, what about uh, Suez in 1956? Uh, I would I actually argue in the book that I think France's uh, participation in the Suez crisis actually points out the limits of uh, France's power projection capabilities. Uh, but France really lacked the ability to project power in the region, and uh, for this reason, uh, all the things that the United States worried about, uh, that it would constrain military freedom of action, it could lead to a conflict that would require the United States to intervene, uh, none of this stuff appeared in France's strategic calculations. And we, we have pretty good evidence of how France viewed proliferation uh, to Israel. And I've looked at, at these uh, records pretty closely, and none of these concerns uh, appear once. Um, and I think it's really a result that France really lacked these capabilities. It's, you know, it's... Uh, could, wasn't a problem for them. Uh, but they did see a significant uh, strategic benefit. Uh, they thought that by helping uh, Israel acquire nuclear weapons, they could constrain a common enemy. Um, and so remember at this time period, late 1950s, early 1960s, France's principal foreign policy challenge uh, was the Algerian Civil War. And the key supporter of the FLN rebels in Algeria uh, was Nasser in Egypt. Uh, and so um, France's foreign policy strategy at this time was really about constraining Nasser forcing Nasser to cut off his support to the FLN rebels, and that this would help France uh, prevail in uh, Algeria. So for this reason, uh, France became a huge supporter of Israel. They thought by building up Israel, they could constrain uh, Nasser. They're uh, a big supporter of, uh, provider of conventional military arms to Israel, provided aircraft, tanks, and artillery. And they also provided uh, nuclear capabilities to Israel. Uh, so just a, a few quotes here about uh, the strategic logic uh, motivating France to provide assistance to uh, Israel, uh, from French Foreign Minister Christian Pinot, uh, quote, France considers it more important to defeat Colonel Nasser's enterprise than to win 10 battles in Algeria. Um, from uh, Shimon Perez, quote, uh, Perez, who was the uh, Israeli, uh, principally involved in the negotiations with France over receiving uh, the nuclear and, and military capabilities. Quote, some French leaders, notably those responsible for defense matters, held that clipping Nasser's wings would limit his ambitions and impact on the Algerian front. Uh, French Defense Minister Maurice Bourgeois explained, quote, I gave the Israelis the atom so that Israel could face its enemies in the Middle East. Uh, and French Prime Minister Guy Mollet, quote, when my government came to power, Israel asked for French assistance. I did my duty as a Democrat, supplying this endangered country with the arms it needed to survive, end quote. Okay. So France saw a strategic benefit to helping Israel acquire nuclear weapons, principally constraining uh, Nasser. A third uh, superpower dependence, I argue that, that countries that are dependent on uh, superpower pressure will be less likely to participate, dependent on superpower protection will be less likely to participate in these transactions. Uh, the United States, as we'd expect as uh, a global superpower, intervened and tried to prevent uh, these transfers. Um, but uh, France uh, considered U.S. requests, uh, but essentially decided to go ahead uh, anyway. And I would argue that at this time, France was essentially uh, independent from the United States, didn't rely on the United States to meet its core security needs. Of course, in 1960, it had its own uh, nuclear arsenal, the French force de frappe. And uh, shortly thereafter, President Charles de Gaulle uh, purposely pursued a policy of, of independence uh, from Washington, uh, culminating in 1966 when France formally withdrew uh, from the uh, NATO uh, Unified Military Command. Now, I contrast this in the book where other cases, the countries that are, that are more dependent on uh, superpower pressure. So one of the cases I look at is uh, Taiwan uh, entering a, an agreement to receive plutonium reprocessing, and the United States intervenes and, and threatens uh, Taiwan and says, you know, you can choose between this plutonium reprocessing facility or the U.S. Navy, and Taiwan uh, chose the U.S. Navy. 
Okay. So in sum, I think in this case we provide uh, see some uh, support uh, for this argument. Uh, it was the relatively weak state, France, that was willing to provide assistance, and they were willing to do it in order to constrain uh, a common enemy. On the other hand, the United States, the relatively powerful state, was, was unwilling to consider assistance uh, because uh, it was worried about how it would constrain its conventional military freedom of action. Okay, so we've looked at a Cold War case, but uh, some people might think, you know, does this, is this just a Cold War logic? Does it apply to uh, the current era? What about AQ Khan's Pakistan or uh, other more uh, recent cases? Uh, so I, I examine in the book in, in some detail the uh, transfers from Pakistan uh, to Iran, Libya, and North Korea from 1987 uh, to the early 2000s. Uh, so in this time period, uh, Pakistan provided um, Iran uh, well, first, Libya with uh, uranium uh, enrichment uh, designs, uranium enrichment um, uh, component parts, uh, and also a nuclear weapons design. We're not sure uh, whether uh, Pakistan also transferred the weapons designs to North Korea and Iran, but we do know that they transferred uranium enrichment designs and component parts. Um, okay, so why did, why did Pakistan do this? So the first thing I argue in the book that is, is that I think according to any reasonable definition, uh, you'd have to say that this is a Pakistani uh, state policy. Um, you know, a lot of the early analyses of this have kind of painted A.Q. Khan as a rogue scientist, uh, brilliant but mysterious, kind of doing this uh, stuff on his own without the knowledge or authority of the Pakistani state. And that definitely makes uh, for a good story, but I think uh, it's, it's implausible. And looking at, at the evidence, I think, um, you know, we find that. Uh, so first... Thing I want to do is, is argue that I think you know this is uh, Pakistani state policy, um, and I think there are a number of, of uh, facts uh, pointing to this. Uh, so first, uh, Pakistan actually had formal nuclear cooperation agreements uh, with all three countries: uh, with Libya, with Iran, and with North Korea. Um, Second, AQ Khan was able to draw on uh, steady uh, state support for all these transfers. Uh, so, for example, the, the transfers were actually done in military and government chartered uh, C-130 aircraft. Um, uh, the foreign ministry, Pakistani foreign ministry, hosted Khan on his trips abroad uh, to conduct these transactions. Uh, the Ministry of Commerce uh, would take out full-page ads at international uh, conferences advertising uh, Khan's ultra-centrifuge designs. So he, so he drew on uh, steady government support. Uh, third, and I think most importantly, there's uh, increasing evidence coming out that uh, all uh, Pakistani uh, top leaders, civilian and military, so civilian heads of state and uh, military uh, chiefs of staff, army chiefs of staff, the highest military in the Pakistani military, the highest position in the Pakistani military, uh, either actively supported these transfers or knew about them and, and were unwilling to stop them, uh, making it a kind of a de facto policy. Uh, so probably the most colorful example I point to in the book is uh, Prime Minister uh, Bhutto, um, who um, personally uh, went to Pyongyang with uh, centrifuge designs on a CD in her coat pocket and perfect, uh, per, uh, personally handed them over to uh, Kim Il-sung, uh, North Korean uh, leader. Uh, she said, uh, quote, I thought the military would be happy with me and stop trying to destabilize my government, uh, end quote. Um, and many more accounts of different uh, Pakistani leaders and, and what they knew uh, in the book. Uh, so in short, I think it's uh, clear that this was uh, state policy. Uh, second, uh, looking at relative power, um, you know, Pakistan uh, lacked the ability to project power over North Korea and Libya. Iran is a, a more difficult uh, case. It's, it's a bordering state, maybe had the, the ability there. Uh, but it was clear anyway that if uh, Libya and North Korea acquired nuclear weapons, this wouldn't uh, constrain Pakistan's military freedom of action. 
Uh, and in fact, I, uh, it's not just my own analysis, talked to some Pakistani leaders, and they seem to share a similar threat assessment. So for example, I talked to Jahangir Karamat, uh, who was uh, former uh, Army Chief of Staff in Pakistan, uh, also formerly served as uh, Ambassador to the United States. And I asked him, I said, Ambassador Karamat, if these countries acquire nuclear weapons, Iran, Libya, North Korea, uh, how does this affect uh, Pakistan's security? Uh, and he looked at me a little puzzled at first and said, North Korea. Uh, North Korea's nuclear capability doesn't threaten us directly, end quote. So even senior Pakistani officials recognized that the proliferation uh, to some of these countries didn't, rec- uh, didn't present a, a direct threat to Pakistan. Uh, next, looking at uh, common enemies, uh, I, I think there's uh, evidence to support uh, the idea that, that many of the senior Pakistani officials involved in these transfers uh, thought that there was a strategic benefit, um, basically that they could constrain uh, U.S. power. Um, uh, probably the best example is General Aslan Beg, uh, also a former chief of Army staff in, in Pakistan, uh, during key parts of these transfers in, in the early 90s, uh, had the strategic vision that, that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States had become too powerful in the Middle East and uh, South Asia, and that Pakistan could create an alliance of, quote, strategic defiance against the United States with the help of Pakistan, um, kind of arming these rogue states hostile to the United States. This would constrain American power and make Pakistan uh, relatively more important in regional politics. Um, And there's evidence that A.Q. Khan believes something uh, similar. So Khan made a number of similar statements. Uh, Just one of them here, uh, referring to the United States, said, quote, I disturb their strategic plans, the balance of power and blackmailing potential in this part of the world, end quote. A third and final point, uh, superpower dependence. Uh, The United States um, had an an idea that these transfers were going on, made a number of attempts, especially in the Clinton administration, to try to get uh, Pakistan uh, to stop. And we probably could have done more, but uh, there is, uh, we clearly put pressure on Pakistan. And again, Pakistan considered our protest, but uh, continued with the transactions anyway. Uh, It wasn't until much later that Musharraf decided to shut down uh, the network. And I think that this was possible because Pakistan at this point didn't see the United States as an important uh, strategic partner. Remember, this is is going on mostly in the 1990s. So after uh, we stopped our close collaboration with Pakistan, fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan, uh, but before our cooperation in in the war on terror. So I think this was a period where uh, Pakistan uh, judged that it could uh, get away with ruffling Washington's feathers and didn't really have much to lose. So again, I think we see uh, common elements in this uh, post-Cold War case. Um, again, the, the, its relative weakness, the presence of a common enemy, and the lack of superpower dependence, uh, rather than uh, some of the stuff that's been talked about in some of the journalistic accounts that really allowed these transfers uh, to occur. Uh, so let me just uh, wrap up. Um, primary argument of the book is that it's really these strategic conditions that allow these transfers to take place, not economic incentives or I didn't really talk about it in the, in the talk, but I also look at the role that the Nuclear Nonproliferation uh, Treaty and other nonproliferation institutions play. And I argue that while they do serve a, a positive role, I think overall, that they're not very effective in, in stopping these kind of nuclear transfers. So what are the implications for U.S. foreign policy? Uh, well, I think the, um, the first implication is, is just for nonproliferation uh, policy uh, broadly, the central insight of the book is that the spread of nuclear weapons threatens powerful states more than it threatens weak states. Uh, so this means that the United States, is, as the most powerful country in the world, is more threatened by proliferation, I would argue, than any other country. And so, you know, for the past few years, we've been banging our head against a wall trying to figure out why it's so hard to get Russian and Chinese cooperation on uh, the Iranian nuclear issue, and people put forward all kinds of explanations. Well, 
you know, they have, these countries have economic interest in Iran, or these countries just don't understand the threat. They'll eventually come around as it becomes more clear that Iran really uh, poses a threat. I would argue that the, the answer is actually more fundamental. These countries are simply less threatened by Iran acquiring nuclear weapons than we are. Uh, for all intents and purposes, we're, we're a Middle Eastern power. We have forces in the region. Iran acquiring nuclear weapons is a direct military threat. Uh, for these countries, uh, even though uh, you know, Russia in particular is geographically more proximate, I think if you do a careful kind of military and strategic analysis, uh, that uh, for, for these countries, it, Iran acquiring nuclear weapons is more of a theoretical concern, not a direct threat. A second question I think that comes up is, is who's next? Who's the next country uh, that will provide uh, nuclear assistance? Um, and I think that if you take these uh, strategic conditions seriously, some of the countries we think about as likely suppliers, um, Pakistan, again, perhaps North Korea, uh, are countries that uh, come up. But I think there are other countries that are potentially uh, at risk of providing nuclear assistance that we don't often think about, including uh, India. Uh, and in fact, there's uh, a leading Indian uh, thinker who's arguing that India uh, should provide nuclear assistance to Taiwan and Vietnam as a way to constrain uh, China. A uh, final uh, question, the question that people have been asking since September 11th is, will states purposely transfer nuclear materials and technology uh, to terrorists? Um, I think the, the, my research suggests that this is, is probably unlikely, that a state would do it intentionally. Um, I think one of the things that we see here is that countries are very careful to provide nuclear assistance only in situations uh, where it wouldn't provide a, a direct uh, threat to themselves. But I think when you're providing nuclear assistance to terrorists, there, are a lot, uh, there aren't really any guarantees that it wouldn't provide, it wouldn't threaten you. Uh, the terrorists could use it against you, could uh, blackmail you, could use it against a third state that would then retaliate against you. Uh, so I think for uh, these reasons and probably many others, it's unlikely that states will purposely transfer nuclear materials and technology to terrorists. Uh, but I think that the strategic conditions that have uh, encouraged states to provide nuclear assistance in the past will continue to fuel the spread of nuclear weapons in the future. Uh, so on that um, slightly depressing note, I'll, I'll end my talk. Great. Well, thanks a lot for that, Matt. I'll go ahead and introduce the two commentators and then let them go at it. And I didn't know, Charlie or Micah, did either of you have a preference who would go first? or Is that first, Micah, or no? No preference. No preference. All right. Well, I guess we'll go in alphabetical order then. So Charlie, uh, Charlie can go first. Uh, Charlie Glazer is a professor at the Elliott School of International Affairs uh, and in the Department of Political Science at uh, G George Washington University here in town. He works on both IR theory uh, and international security policy, and his uh, highly anticipated book, uh, Theory of Rational International Politics, has just been published by Princeton University Press. Um, his research on IR theory has focused on the security dilemma, defensive realism, the offense-defense balance, uh, and arms races. Uh, he's done work on the Cold War nuclear weapons policy, which culminated in the book Analyzing Strategic Nuclear Weapons po Strategic Nuclear Policy, excuse me, in 1990. Uh, he holds a PhD from the Kennedy School at Harvard uh, and a BS in physics from MIT, an MA in physics, and MPP from Harvard. Before joining GW, Professor Glazer was the Emmett Dedman Professor of Public Policy and the Deputy Dean at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Mike Zenko is a Fellow for Conflict Prevention in the Center for Preventive Action at the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Zenko has published on a range of national security issues, including articles in the Journal of Strategic Studies, 
Parameters, Defense and Security Analysis, Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science, and op-eds in the Washington Post, LA Times, Chicago Trib, and Boston Globe. He's currently researching and writing on enhancing the capacity for preventive action within international institutions and on assessing deep cuts in U.S. and Russian nuclear weapons. His forthcoming book, which will be published next month, or not next month, in August, I should say, Between Threats and War, U.S. Discrete Military Operations in the Post-Cold War World, will be published by Stanford University Press. Zenko holds a Ph.D. in political science from Brandeis. So with that, we'll turn things over first to Charlie Glazer and then to Micah Zenko. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I look forward to commenting briefly on Matt's book. I'm in the uncomfortable position of usually having so many things, so many criticisms that I'm reluctant to launch into my spiel and go too long. This book is a really good book, and I have less criticism about it or less of a critique than I normally would, so I will be brief. Um, Let me say partly why I think it's a very good book. You heard the specifics of the talk, but it's a very nicely laid out argument. It's, Matt has a very steady hand. He makes a few basic points, and then he develops them consistently, providing a very rich argument along the way. Um, there are things you can disagree with. I'll mention a few, but I was c- frequently in the position of thinking, oh, well, I don't agree with this or this, and then he would get to it in a, in a, in a second-order argument. He would address it, and so it, um, it's a very nice kind of book to read that way. He deals with many cases, um, and at, at good length, not like you're going to drown in the history, but that you're mostly satisfied. Although, there again, I'll raise a point or two where I would like to have known more. Um, and he goes to some length to deal with what you might think of the exceptions that come to mind and explains either why they are exceptions, admitting, giving a little space, not too much, but a little, and a couple we should probably give a little bit more um, to say, yeah, it doesn't explain everything, um, but also just explaining why um, some cases that look like exceptions are not. So I had in mind, for instance, um, Russian aid to China, which seems maybe is the most obvious problem, right? It's a power project. Russia is a power projecting state, um, giving aid only for a limited period to China. But so he he deals with that case and he says, yeah, well, it doesn't completely explain it, but has a way to, to explain how it partially explains it. And the other one I had in mind was China um, helping Pakistan because since they border each other. By his argument, basically, China would look to be a power-projecting state relative to Pakistan. But if you look at the geography, um, it's very hard to project power where it would be relevant. And so it doesn't count, even though they border each other and they're neighbors, which would make them um, make China a powerful state relative to Pakistan. So in that sense, the book really um, covers its bases and leaves you thinking that um, this is a fair assessment. Um, it's a provocative argument, so I still don't feel completely comfortable with it. And so I keep coming back to it. Um, but it's well argued, so it doesn't fall apart. Um, looking at sensitive nuclear assistance is a very interesting and good way to get at what states' real beliefs are. Um, I think that if you think in terms of nonproliferation policy, states feel some substantial amount of pressure to be against proliferation. So you'll see rhetorical um, criticism of all proliferation. You'll see states joining international institutions that reflect norms of nonproliferation. Uh, but that may be not necessarily cheap, but it may not reflect their real preferences. And so looking at this um, way of ass- assistance um, gets you much closer to what states believe about the dangers of proliferation or not. So I think it's a very good way um, and a very creative way to get at this set of issues. I think it, in some ways um, the book is bigger um, than Matt makes it out to be, although the argument is there and it's clear, the bigger argument, which I want to highlight, 
Um, but many of you will probably leave thinking this is a book about sensitive nuclear assistance. Um, you, could, you could easily take that away from Matt's comment. It is about that, but it's actually about a bigger argument about um, is proliferation dangerous? Um, and as Matt said, his key insight, and the one that drives all of his specific hypotheses about assistance, is about the danger of proliferation. Um, but he does, and he puts that up front, but you could put it up front even more in a way. Um, and the argument goes something like this, which is that we tend to think of the debate, particularly for those of us that are sort of um, very much involved in the academic debate, as either proliferation is good or bad. Um, and it's played that way out largely in the literature. Um, there are other strands, but particularly just because the way we teach, we focus on certain things. So many of you that have been students recently probably have that in mind. Um, but in fact, if you think proliferation probably, the danger of proliferation probably does vary both by the state that's looking at, at the proliferation. So is it the United States that's worried about it or is it Pakistan? And also by the country that's getting nuclear weapons. And so I sort of teach some of this just intuitively in my class, but I don't teach the, many of the points that Matt made. Um, but clearly we know that the United States does not have a homogeneous view about proliferation, right? We're much more worried about whether North Korea has nuclear weapons than whether Britain or France have nuclear weapons. Iran doesn't look to us like, like Britain. So we make distinctions there, and this argument is well-developed in the literature, that actually who gets nuclear weapons matters to us. And the key driving factor there is actually our um, relation with the states, right? We are much more comfortable with close allies having nuclear weapons than we are with potential enemies or um, unreliable states or with rogue states. So we know that all proliferation from a political perspective is not equal, and there actually is a good IR theory reason for that, but it's not front and center in the proliferation debate. Matt goes beyond this, which I would sort of say is the, pol the political um, view of the country that's looking at a proliferation and looks and says, well, what about states that are considering aiding or not aiding proliferation and what matters to them? And he adds not a political dimension, but you might call it a military strategic dimension, which is how does proliferation influence their ability to use force? And he says, actually, depending upon how it influences your ability to use force, influences whether you think proliferation is dangerous or not. And then from that, he gets tremendous leverage for looking at this particular vehicle, which is sensitive nuclear assistance. So the big argument in the book and the argument that drives his analysis and that he's very clear about is that the fact that sort of geopolitical or geostrategic considerations influence a country's view about the implications of proliferation. Um, and given that, it is natural in some ways, although maybe not in all ways, that more powerful states with greater reach are going to see greater danger um, in spread and therefore will assist less. Um, okay, so all of that is most books don't get over nearly that many hurdles. <laughs> um, let me make a few specific comments where I would press harder or maybe have doubts or maybe I'm not completely convinced. One point that Matt didn't focus on today, obviously for reasons of time, is the question of whether helping an ally is good. I mean, you might think that giving an ally nuclear weapons would be good or at least not very bad. Um, he argues that it's bad, not quite as, that a, um, it's maybe not quite as bad as when an enemy gets nuclear weapons, but it's still bad. Um, I think that's more up for grabs, at least given the style of argument that he's making than the book lets on. So he points out that, yes, you could then get drawn into, an, um, into a regional conflict in which nuclear weapons are involved. Yes, it does, and it would, in fact, weaken alliance structures. There would be cost to having an ally get nuclear weapons, and therefore countries might be reluctant to do it. 
On the other hand, I think the, other, the, the opposing arguments are on their face just as strong, which is it, particularly if you have long, uh, an ally that you think of as a long-term ally, that country can better deter and defend with nuclear weapons. And so the security of your ally is increased. The reason for the alliance is the ally's security. The ally's security increased. That's a big plus. Um, and if the alliance fell apart because the ally was so secure, that might also be good because alliances aren't good for their own sake. They're good because they provide security. So if, if Germany having nuclear weapons would have made NATO completely secure, and if NATO would have fallen apart, well, that would have been fine because we were only there to keep Western Europe safe. So it's hard to count that in a deep, in a sort of basic IR theory sense as a cost for the alliance. I mean, it is a cost for the alliance. It's hard to see it as a cost for the country's security, which is the lens through which he's driving this. So I don't, I'm not saying it's a bad argument. I'm just saying I think that if you'd asked me to argue the other side of it, I would have been at least as comfortable taking the opposing view, which is that proliferation to reliable allies is desirable. And then you get in this question about um, well, how reliable are they? Will they be our allies in the long term? And so on and so forth. So it makes me think that to some extent U.S. policy and its reluctance to see certain allies have nuclear weapons is actually not primarily or at least only explained by the strategic logic. It's just my instinct. I mean, I'm not saying I've got lots of counter. I mean, you'd have to work hard to pull those things apart. But that's just my instinct. But the U.S. has been reluctant. Um, I think he, Matt is right to say that proliferation, or he's only partly right to say that you, proliferation is most, you're changing gears to a second point, one that he ended with. Proliferation is most threatening to the United States. Um, that's probably not right. It follows from his argument, and it's, it, it captures the sense of his argument. But lost in that is that proliferation in some regions could be more threatening to regional powers than that proliferation is to the United States. So if you look at it from India's perspective, I mean, I think... Pakistan getting nuclear weapons is way more threatening to India than it is to the United States. The United States would probably rather not have any of those countries have nuclear weapons for various reasons. Um, but from a regional perspective, um, or from a specific country's perspective, proliferation could be more dangerous for that country than for the United States. And that's not a, there's no logical conflict with this argument there. It's just how you want to spin it. I might well spin it the way he put it also um, to get your attention. But I think if you really got pressed on that, um, that probably is not something you'd want to stand by. Um, well, you might. I mean, we're here. Um, a third point, maybe just where I'm still left not completely satisfied, is on, on, on Pakistan. I think it's a very good corrective, and I haven't read all of the literature, but it just makes sense, given the way we know that happened, that um, AQ Khan at least had the backing of the Pakistani government, and so you could think of it as Pakistani policy. But it's a little different to ask, was Pakistan acting strategically in the way that Matt suggests, which would in some ways to say if you took AQ Khan out of the picture, would Pakistani leaders have initiated this kind of proliferation on their own for the strategic reasons he says? Um, and although I think he does a very nice case, discussion in the case, I was, you know, it was sort of more like they acquiesced. He's a very important person. He'd probably be hard to go up against. He had lots of allies in the government. So maybe they didn't really support it strategically, although they just didn't hate it enough to kill it or they benefited from it enough. If that's the case, it's rather different than a state supporting proliferation for the strategic reasons that Matt highlights. Um, and then it's a minor point, but one that I'm curious about is that he points out when he looks at the data broadly that he does not see a, a broad effect of the NPT and the NPT norm in slowing proliferation, um, which uh, I should say in slowing the um, use of sensitive of nuclear assistance. Um, 
And I think he does find that in the data. And I, um, but I did look at the, just his, his cases. And one thing I wondered was, I think you would find an effect if you look at the relationship between when countries acceded to the NPT um, and their willingness to provide sensitive nuclear assistance. Because France joins in 92, China joins in 92. All of their assistance is before that. Um, I think there's only one exception on the list, which is Germany. Um, and that maybe can get excused by a different kind of, of reason. Um, so I, don't, I wouldn't use that argument necessarily to say that the NPT and the norm itself have a large impact. Um, because I tend to think of institutions as being really quite endogenous um, to structure and interest. So probably what you're seeing there um, is that these countries have changed their own views of proliferation, and that's why they accede, or their domestic politics have changed enough, so that's why they, why they join the regime. And then that also influences their views about sensitive nuclear assistance. Um, so once again, I think you'd get a relatively null result for the impact of the international institution itself but it would be a slightly different spin on the story, and it would just be a way to look at, instead of taking 68 or 70 as the MPT, to look at when countries joined it and take that as some reflection of their preferences about proliferation and then match that up to the assistance. Um, so I just got a warning for three minutes, but I actually only want to take one, so I think I'm in good order here, which is, um, I think if Matt, I mean, these are all things that I'm interested in, but if, even if he did these and sort of nailed them even more than he has, it wouldn't be a much better book. It would be slightly better. It's a very good book the way it is. Um, and I think it reminds us, I mean, it, it really highlights a point that we sort of know, but that we've lost track of for two reasons in the U.S. debate. One is um, we tended to think proliferation is bad, which I think is reasonable for a variety of reasons. But you could say it's bad for two reasons, both of which match up in the United States. We, because we created the bomb, because we have so many nuclear weapons, because we're very aware of all, maybe do have a greater aversion um, to nuclear spread and greater awareness of the dangers. I mean, I think that is part of, that does influence U.S. policy. But if we forgot the strategic costs, we'd be overlooking a major part of why the United States looks at proliferation the way we do and why other countries don't. Um, and so capturing that is very important. And the book really does that very, very well. Um, second point, which Matt got to at the end, but I think it's very important to notice or recognize is that this means that successful nonproliferation policy may well be much harder than we tend to think it will be. And the reason isn't necessarily because there are a bunch of bad states out there, but they look at the situation very differently. And so we tend to think, like, everybody wants to stop proliferation pretty much as much as we do, but maybe they don't want to pay the economic cost or maybe they don't want to pay the political costs. Um, but it could well be um, that there are countries that want see proliferation as valuable, as this book lays out. It could also be that there are other countries that simply see it as less dangerous, so they're not going to engage in sensitive nuclear assistance, but they're not going to throw their full weight behind enforcing the restrictions of the MPT. And that, Matt doesn't make that argument, but it's really entirely consistent with his argument. Um, and so countries that now have less power projection capability are going to worry less about proliferation, um, in which case getting together coalitions that are willing to incur large costs themselves and run large risks um, is going to be harder than we would estimate if we just look from a U.S. perspective. Thank you. Hello. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. And uh, overall, I just uh, should take some time to re-endorse a lot of what has been said uh, on Matt's behalf. Um, as somebody who has been through the sort of long, hard slog of graduate school and trying to divine data sets and trying to do policy-relevant research, um, for those of you who are 
young enough to not uh, made that process yet. This is a book to buy because in many ways it's a model for how to do uh, policy-relevant uh, social science, both in a quantitative sense as well as in a, qua a qualitative sense. I mean, I think 10, 15 years ago when I was first interested in these topics, if you wanted to consider who did sensitive nuclear assistance, you would be looking at 100 different sources, and most of them would not be very good, and they wouldn't be analyzed in any way, and there was no way to determine what was real and what was not. So. The, really, the big challenge of doing data set collection, of course, is you have to make some definitional uh, standards and you have to stick to them and you have to defend them. And I think uh, Matt does a good job of that as well as sort of having the standard of two sources for each one. So that allows them to do the quantitative piece. The harder one is to do sort of the, the focused comparative case studies. And these are excellent case studies, uh, the, the ones presented therein, because, you know, if you read Journal of Conflict Resolution, which um, or journals like that, which I'm guessing Matt and others who can do uh, sort of high-level formal theory and, and quantitative work, uh, you know, you get to the final page to, to determine the conclusion, which is oftentimes not very, uh, not much of a revelation. It turns out states act in their own interests. I mean, you say, well, I think I knew that before uh, you did the math to prove it. Um, but why states act in their own interests is really the more interesting story. You can only get at that through the case studies, and Matt does an excellent job there. So, I mean, on the one hand, again, it's, it's readable, it's uh, rigorous social science, and it's also very policy-relevant uh, to today. So I, I recommend it uh, about as highly as I could, both for people who are interested in doing this field and people interested in the issue area specifically. Um, again, the, 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 most, the most interesting contribution is the creation of the data set because there is inherent secrecy in this issue, and uh, policy-relevant areas that are secret, people tend to avoid. Uh, or they tend to measure things they can, which often are not the, the most interesting things. So um, Matt uh, did, the, did the homework to create the new data sets. That's, that's good. Um, a couple issues on the definitional things that I think I'll get to. One is uh, uh, I hate the correlates of war uh, Composite Capabilities Index for power projection, which is, I know, one that everyone in the field uses, but in many ways I think of it as sort of a 19th century uh, definition for how, uh, st how states organize for war, you know, things like population, iron and steel production, military manpower and defense spending. I mean, it's a, sort of the Stalinist notion of how, you, uh, how you're able to uh, create war on other states. Um, you know, as my colleague Steve Biddle has pointed out in the sort of tactics, techniques, and procedures of modern warfare, it's not the capabilities, but in fact, it's the organizational ability to learn and put them together in an effective way. Although Matt does not make any claims to the efficacy of power projection, whether or not you can actually win a ground war, but um, it's more interesting to think about both the integration as well as whether or not a state uh, possesses the infrastructures for overseas bases and logistics hubs and political uh, authority for flyover rights, which are in many ways more determinative of whether or not you have the ability to project power than sort of raw iron production. Um, I, I, I agreed wholeheartedly with Matt's. It's a high standard for what is a nuclear-capable supplier. So if you're, if you're in this field, you know that there's this number thrown around a lot, which is generally 44. 44 is both based on CTBT uh, Appendix uh, 2 as well as sort of various IEA documents. Since 44 is supposed to be the number of nuclear-capable countries. They're supposed to be all these countries, given uh, their opportunity, could uh, supply uh, sensitive nuclear assistance. But in fact, uh, Matt looks at the countries that have done it, and it's 19. And I think getting get, both saying that nuclear assistance uh, is a high is a has a higher threshold than things like you know uh, exporting dual use things for machining parts and, and miraging steel and so forth. So I think that's that's a very valuable contribution. Um, 
one other sort of puzzle I had was sort of on, or a question I had was on the state assistance. Uh, Matt looks at states that supply, and, he, and in, in many ways it sort of downplays non-state uh, non supply. And I was reading yesterday David Albright's also excellent book on this issue, and he has this quote that caught my eye. It says, Pakistan's centrifuge program was based on imports of individual components, not a whole plant, from a variety of private companies in several countries, not just one government-owned company in one country. And that gets to this other issue, which is what I call the sort of indigeneity, indigeneity of the ability to produce a nuclear weapon. So there are four countries that Matt does not code for having received sensitive nuclear assistance that, in fact, uh, obtained nuclear weapons ability. And one is uh, North Korea's plutonium program. The others are uh, France, United Kingdom, and South Africa. But they all had nuclear weapons. Um, and now um, they all receive some degree of sensitive nuclear assistance, but not high enough to meet the threshold. So that suggests that perhaps on the sort of non-state market, there is greater concern than, uh, than the book lays out. The worry, my, my big worry is that if the takeaway of people from this book is that it's mostly state-sponsored uh, sensitive nuclear assistance that determines proliferation, there might be some shift in sort of uh, prioritization of where you collect intelligence and where you focus. Um, undoubtedly, the state-sensitive nuclear assistance is the most important thing, but there clearly is something to be said both for non-state actors and for uh, indigenous surprise ability that we really don't, uh, that we really might miss. Um, Overall, I find this sort of general proposition um, really uh, accepted, especially among the military professionals, which is the reason you oppose proliferation is because it inhibits your ability to project power. I'm doing some research on this topic right now, and there's a great quote from uh, General Kevin Schilt, uh, Chilton of Strategic Command this March where he said, uh, throughout the 65-year history of nuclear weapons, no nuclear power has been conquered or even put at risk of conquest. Um, and that's a pretty powerful finding, and you know, I often take anything a four-star general uh, says correctly, but the more I had some people we sort of looked at this issue, you really don't find any instances of it. So it's a, it makes sense for why states would both want on the demand side, and that's been done to death, but it also makes sense why some states uh, would resist the proliferation. But in general, it's an unsurprising finding as well because states generally pose things that reduce their influence or constrains their freedom of action, period. So if this book wasn't about nuclear weapons proliferation, you would assume no matter what the issue area is that states would do anything to try to prevent uh, their ability to have their hands tied. Um, you know, for example, Brazil, I was thinking about Brazil doesn't vote against, doesn't vote in favor of Iran resolutions in the IAEA Board of Governors or the UN Security Council resolutions, not because they can't project power against Iran, but primarily they want to have the indigenous ability to enrich uranium for their own civilian nuclear energy use, and they've talked about exporting it well. So it's less about power projection in that instance than, than it is their sort of domestic interest to do so. Um, uh, two other quick things. One, and uh, Matt's book is about getting to the nuclear threshold. But what he doesn't discuss is uh, sensitive nuclear assistance once you've reached the threshold, uh, which I found, uh, which is relevant if you're a power projecting state because if a country has one nuclear weapon, you know, you might, uh, you might throw the dice and try to uh, engage it in a land war, but if they have 10 or 20 and the ability to deliver them, you won't. So uh, Matt doesn't include sort of Israel's assistance of tritium to South Africa, which provides a more uh, extensive boost. He also doesn't include... U.S. assistance to France. There's the famous article by Richard Ullman on the 20 questions, uh, negative assistance, which the United States gave to France over the years. And that uh, did a lot to sort of give France merv merved SLBMs, hardened their, uh, their, their, their uh, warheads, 
it improved their missile technology and also gave them the ability to have really quiet subs and not be detected. So on the one hand, France was already past the nuclear threshold, but it became a more significant nuclear power as a result of U.S. assistance. Um, the sort of final issue, uh, I would say, is that we should expect, and this is an area for future research, and Matt has very important, has very good qualifiers about what this book is not about, but we should expect that the power projecting states will try to uh, prevent the proliferation of any anti-access weapons. It was anti-ship, anti-shipping weapons, uh, uh, naval mines, integrated air defense systems, and so forth, and we do see clear evidence of that because, again, it's, a, it's an instance of, uh, of trying to uh, prevent your ability to do things. Um, and the, and the, just the final issue is that one of the reasons that Matt does not get into for why uh, states try to prevent proliferation, power projecting, is that if you s provide country with the nuclear ability, they could then use it against you. I mean against your homeland, not against your ability to project power in a region. And there are these, I spent the hobby looking at all these national intelligence estimates about the problem of called clandestine introduction of nuclear weapons. And if you read these uh, intelligence estimates, a big concern of why the U.S. should prevent proliferation is because uh, China, Russia, all the other countries that acquire nuclear capability could actually introduce a nuclear weapon into the United States and, uh, and detonate it. And that's not one of the issues that, that Matt gets, in, gets into, um, and I'd be hopeful to get his thoughts about that. Um, but uh, just to reiterate the points made uh, previously, this is arguably the most important book on the issue of nuclear proliferation since, I don't know, the Sagan Waltz or Sagan's book, uh, Scott Sagan's book by itself. So if you haven't bought it yet, buy it. And once you've bought it, you'll recommend it to your friends. So thank you. Well, thank you both, Charlie and Micah, for those excellent uh, uh, praise and for the criticisms. And as I, as I just mentioned to Matt, there's a lot on the table. So we won't ask you to, uh, to deal with all of it. But if there are any, uh, a few minutes worth of uh, responses you'd like to do, and then we'll, uh, we'll throw it open to questions and answers. So Matt, do you want to take a couple of the items? Yeah, I'll maybe just uh, respond to uh, one, one of the questions raised by each of the discussants. And uh, thank you very much for those really helpful comments. We should have done this event just before the book came out, and then I could have uh, incorporated some of this and, and bulletproofed it uh, a little bit more. Um, but, so those are all um, actual, excellent uh, comments. Uh, so I'll, I'll just respond to one point uh, that each uh, person raised for now so we can get it uh, to the, the Q&A section. Um, so I guess what I'll respond to uh, uh, from, first from Charlie is uh, Charlie raised this question first um, about helping uh, an ally acquire nuclear weapons. Then he says, I make a pretty strong case that helping enemies acquire nuclear weapons is bad for these power projecting states because it constrains their freedom of action. But what about uh, to uh, allied states, perhaps you could argue that there's actually uh, an upside to it that uh, you guarantee that country's security and, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, so I, I think I think he's right that you can make a, a theoretical argument that there, there's an upside. Uh, so what I'd like to do is maybe just uh, reiterate why I think there's a theoretical argument that there's a downside and then also present some empirical evidence as to why I think the power projecting states uh, tend to see in, in practice the, the downsides more than the upside. Uh, so first, you know, the, the, the theoretical reasons why you might think that helping an ally acquire nuclear weapons is bad. Um, first, I think that, um, you know, it could undermine uh, the, the strength of, the, of that alliance. And, it, and it's not, as Charlie points out, you know, if the point of the alliance is, is just to secure that uh, country's um, security, uh, maybe that's not such a bad thing. They have security independence with nuclear weapons. But I think also uh, power, powerful states see alliances as uh, tools of, uh, of uh, coercion uh, as well, that, that they have uh, an advantage being able to provide a country uh, with uh, uh, 
being able to promise to protect its security is is a, is an advantage that you that you can um, use, use in foreign policy. And and so, um, you know, when that country acquires nuclear weapons, you no longer uh, have the, the leverage over it before that that you had in the past that you could uh, hold out this promise of military protection in exchange uh, for for other concessions from that state. And and indeed, I think we've seen uh, historically countries uh, using the the promise of military protection as a way to gain concessions on on other issues. And uh, looking at just the way the United States viewed the issue, the United that's one of the things that the United States worried about in uh, when France was acquiring nuclear weapons, when uh, Israel was acquiring nuclear weapons, that these countries would become less reliable allies, that the United States would have less control over them uh, if they were no longer dependent on uh, Washington's protection. Um, the second re reason um, that you should worry about allies acquiring nuclear weapons, and maybe more important, uh, is that uh, if an ally acquires nuclear weapon, uh, nuclear weapons, other countries uh, in the region may be threatened by that country's nuclear capability and may seek their own nuclear arsenals in response, and those other countries may be adversaries. And, and again, this is something that, that Washington worried about. Uh, so one of the things that it worried about with Israel acquiring nuclear weapons is that if Israel acquired nuclear weapons, then the Arab states uh, would get nuclear weapons uh, in response. Maybe the Soviet Union would help the Arab states acquire nuclear weapons, and, and that would create all kinds of problems for the United States. I mean, today I think we worry about uh, Japan acquiring nuclear weapons, uh, not so much because we're afraid that Japan Japan's going to attack us, but because other states in the region might uh, proliferate in response, and nuclear on Middle East or uh, East Asia would be really problematic for the United States. Uh, so I think um, there, there are good reasons to think that proliferation, even to allies, is uh, threatening for these power projections power-projecting states. And I think if we just look at, at U.S. behavior over the years, it's clear that this is the way the United States uh, views the problem. Um, the United States, I would argue, has, has always uh, opposed uh, proliferation. Um, I think Charlie's right to point out that uh, maybe we, we oppose it harder to enemies than to uh, allies. I mean, you know, in every case where an enemy was about to acquire nuclear weapons, we seriously thought about a preventive military strike. We drew up plans, considered it at high levels. Um, there's no evidence that we thought about bombing uh, France or, or UK or, or, or allies, uh, on the other hand. So, so I think it's, it's clear that we are more threatened by proliferation to enemies. But uh, if we just look at the record, we've always preferred even that our allies not acquire nuclear weapons. So uh, we pressured Taiwan uh, to give up its program. We pressured South Korea, pressured Israel. Uh, and even in the, in the case of, of France and, and the U.K., um, we, we preferred that these countries uh, not acquire nuclear weapons. And um, one of the things that was really interesting uh, in this book is, is looking at uh, the U.S.-British um, uh, alliance early on. A lot of people assumed that we gave the bomb to, to Great Britain or that, you know, it just kind of came out of the Manhattan Project. What, what's really interesting is that, um, in, in researching this book, is that once the United States acquired uh, nuclear weapons, uh, our official policy uh, was switched to um, denying uh, Great Britain the bomb. And we actually cut off all assistance uh, to Great Britain after uh, they helped us uh, build nuclear weapons. And from that point on, uh, Britain uh, went on to develop its capability on its own. So this kind of conventional wisdom that's out there that, that we gave Britain the bomb is you know, actually not true. We, we uh, were willing to draw in their uh, help until we got the weapon. But then after that, we, uh, we tried to cut them out. Um, so th that actually leads to the, the point I wanted to make in response to um, Micah. Um, so Micah asked about this question about what about assistance after countries acquire nuclear weapons, uh, which I think is, is an interesting question. Um, but as, as I pointed out, it's not something that I explore in the book. I'm, I'm looking only at uh, why countries would help non-nuclear weapon states. And once they acquire nuclear weapons, I, I no longer um, 
uh, analyze it. So as I pointed out, there are uh, times where nuclear weapon states assist other nuclear weapon states with their nuclear programs. I think this is uh, an important topic, one that maybe should be researched, but it's not one that I research. Uh, so as Micah correctly pointed out, uh, the United States, for example, helped France. Um, um, I mean, actually, the United States has this kind of history of opposing nuclear weapons to all states. And then once they uh, acquire uh, nuclear weapons, then we become uh, pretty willing to help them, uh, primarily because we're concerned about the uh, survivability and the safety of, of their nuclear arsenal. Uh, so in the case of um, Britain, France, Israel, uh, Pakistan today, uh, we oppose these countries. Uh, we wanted them not to acquire nuclear weapons, but once they acquired, we were willing to help with the survivability of the nuclear arsenals, the safety of their nuclear arsenals, sharing permissive action links, helping with... Uh, delivery capabilities, this kind of thing. Um, so I think the reason why I decided to divide the book the way I did and not look at these transfers among nuclear weapon states is because I think the logic's uh, very different. And I think we see that with, with U.S. behavior. Um, once a country acquires nuclear weapons, I think a lot of states, including the United States, realize that it's kind of a fait accompli. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. And I think the United States is, becomes much more willing than to um, you know, recognize it as uh, something that can't be undone and uh, engaging with a new strategic reality. So I guess I'll uh, stop my comments there, and I look forward to the discussion. Great. Thanks a lot, Matt. Okay, we'll start with Q&A now. If I can just ask everyone to obviously raise your hand. Uh, please wait for the microphone. Uh, identify yourself in any affiliation you may have, and then uh, offer a brief uh, question. Uh, I see a gentleman over there behind the camera in the front row. Yeah, uh, Jason just wait for the microphone if you can. Thanks. Um, just a just a quick question. Um, great presentation and excellent excellent comments. Um, very interesting. Um, I was curious. Uh, it seems like there is a, a possibility in terms of a of a policy implication that you didn't offer, which is that the U.S. should be trying to develop alliance dependence as much as it can with potential proliferator allies. Um, now that recommendation might not get you invited back to Cato, but it does seem like it fits well with the with the argument of the book. Um, yeah, I think um, I think that's right. And uh, you know, so as I pointed out in the in my discussion of Pakistan, I think one of the casualties of um, our um, uh, the kind of diminishing of, of the U.S. Uh, Pakistani uh, or the deteriorating nature of the U.S. Pakistani alliance in the 1990s were, were these nuclear transfers. So you know, many people today are arguing that we, we shouldn't abandon Pakistan again. Uh, that, but uh, you know primarily from a counterterrorism point of view, that you know, we need to commit to Pakistan, that we will we'll be in and, and will provide assistance, and that this will help uh, get their cooperation in, in terms of counterterrorism. I think another potential advantage is that in, in nuclear transfers from Pakistan would potentially become less likely uh, if they, they do believe that they're really dependent on uh, U.S. assistance and on, on U.S. protection. They realize that this is uh, something that's uh, really a no-no from our point of view, and that providing these kind of transfers, again, could lead to, to a severing of the relationship. So I think that is uh, a potential uh, implication that the United States uh, can use uh, it, its alliances and, and its leverage um, to uh, thwart uh, these nuclear transactions. And so perhaps extending security guarantees uh, to more countries, another potential advantage is that uh, we have something that we can threaten to take away. I mean, one of the problems with uh, North Korea today, I think, you know, North Korea is one of the countries we're worried about providing nuclear assistance. Uh, North Korea, uh, we know now from 2001 to 2007, helped uh, Syria to build uh, a nuclear reactor. Um, before we, we learned about this uh, in 2007, uh, you know, we were engaging in a number of uh, negotiations with North Korea over its nuclear program. 
uh, we reached some tentative agreements. And one of the things we, we threatened over and over was that uh, one of the deal breakers would be uh, nuclear assistance. Uh, that you know, uh, I mean, we had two things that we said would be deal breakers. No, no, we told North Korea no, no nuclear tests uh, and no uh, nuclear assistance, and, and they did both. And I think uh, part of the reason is that they really had nothing to lose. I mean, the, the relationship was so bad, we had nothing really to threaten to take away. Uh, so I think having something to threaten to take away uh, from a country is is a potential. Uh, point of leverage in, in international politics. So it's one potential implication, but you know, you'd have to assess it by a case-by-case -case basis. And is this uh, benefit outweigh other potential costs of, um, there are clearly costs involved in extending U.S. security commitments. So. Uh, right all the way back, uh, Lady in the Red. Pink. Hi. I'm Anna Newby. I'm an intern at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And it seems like one of the more provocative implications of your argument, and this is something that you say in your book, is that superpowers attempt to establish a hegemonic nonproliferation order. And I guess I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit on what exactly you mean by hegemonic and whether you're making sort of a more normative comment on whether nonproliferation efforts are a good thing. Uh, yeah, thanks for that. So... Uh, yeah, so I had this uh, concept that I developed in the book, the hegemonic nonproliferation order. So maybe the, um, maybe it's not the best label. It actually uh, came out of kind of an extension of some other uh, academic literature on hegemonic st uh, stability theory, uh, basically this idea that, that superpowers have an interest in an open uh, international trading system, and so they're willing to uh, invest in uh, developing that system because they benefit from it disproportionately. Uh, so I, I used a similar language. So it's not a really normative argument. I think it's it's an attempt at, at a descriptive argument of, of what I think is this strategic reality that that superpowers are, are are more threatened by proliferation than any other state. And this actually gets to a point that uh, Charlie made. Um, I think Charlie's probably right in pointing out that uh, India is more threatened by Pakistan acquiring nuclear weapons than the United States. So on a case by case basis, it's not that the United States is always more th threatened by proliferation than every other state. I think my argument is that. Uh, uh, on average, if there's going to be proliferation in some uh, random country in the world, uh, a superpower is always going to be to some degree threatened by that. Uh, many other countries uh, will not be. Uh, and so since superpowers are threatened by uh, proliferation uh, to any country on Earth, uh, they're willing to invest in developing this uh, nonproliferation order. So I think if we look during the Cold War, it was uh, the United States and the Soviet Union who were really the lead forces behind setting up the institutions of the uh, nonproliferation regime. Uh, you know, we were able to cooperate together on uh, the nonproliferation treaty, the nuclear suppliers group. I mean, it's really interesting, I think, that, you know, it's really one of the only things that the United States and the Soviet Union uh, could agree upon during the Cold War was that proliferation was bad. And I think it's because as superpowers, we were, we were both threatened by proliferation anywhere. We were willing to cooperate uh, to, to stop it. So that's what I meant by the this nonproliferation order, that superpowers are particularly threatened by proliferation and so are willing to invest in developing uh, this international institutional architecture to, to try to prevent it. Other questions? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll usurp the moderator's privilege then if I, there's, a, there's a, a dearth of questions. And just sort of press a little bit more on a point that I, if I remember correctly, you made in the conclusion I think Charlie brought up as well. Um, it's sort of the political scientists move to say that there are these sort of uh, structural forces moving about and to, to, to rain on the Washington parade of uh, historical narrative and uh, history's actors, great men uh, uh, making things happen. So in this context of whether we want to call it, you know, unipolarity or very, very, very imbalanced multipolarity, are we just sort of doomed? Is, 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 is proliferation, it seems as though uh, proliferation should be a very uh, uh, 
if not common, should we be seeing more proliferation? Should it be particularly uh, relevant with a, as imbalanced a, an international system as obtains today? Yeah, uh, so that's an excellent question. I think um, I think your instincts uh, probably right. I think uh, in, in a unipolar world that the proliferation is probably worse than it is in in a multipolar or a bipolar world, and I think there, that's because on the demand side and on the supply side. I mean, I think on on the demand side there are, are many countries that are threatened by uh, U.S. military power. I mean, even though I, I don't think of us as as a threatening country, I think just our, our overwhelming power. Um, makes us uh, threatening to other countries. And so I think some countries seek uh, nuclear weapons as, as uh, a way to protect themselves from the United States. And, you know, there was the quote from the uh, Indian general that the primary lesson of, of the Iraq war was uh, get nuclear weapons. Um, and I think that's a, a lesson that, you know, North Korea uh, has learned, that, that Iran's learning. According to recent reports, uh, Burma may be learning. Um, I don't know if you heard uh, last week, um, a defector from uh, Burma, uh, Burmese general, um, has came forward and said that uh, Burma is developing uh, plutonium reprocessing capability, working on nuclear weapons designs uh, with help uh, perhaps from North Korea. Uh, so I think it's too early to uh, kind of verify these claims or, or know how accurate it is or how much progress Burma is making, but I think at, at a minimum we should uh, be concerned. Uh, so I think that in the in unipolar world there there is um, – perhaps more demand for nuclear weapons. I mean, during the Cold War, a country like North Korea, threatened by the United States, could turn to the Soviet Union for help. Uh, now, you know, they can't turn to the Soviet Union. They turn to uh, people like A.Q. Khan. Um, I, I think also on the, on the supply side that, that proliferation um, may be worse, because uh, I, I do think that the, the, these states with uh, power project, global power projection and capabilities, global uh, interest, uh, do... Uh, refrain from providing assistance, work hard to try to prevent it. Um, and I think right now the United States is really uh, on its own uh, in a lot of these efforts. And I, I think we see this in, in trying to get international cooperation on Iran. I mean, we were getting a, just having a terrible time trying to get serious help from, I mean, we, we struggled a long time to get uh, European help. Uh, the Europeans seem more willing to come, come along now, uh, still struggling to get uh, Chinese and Russian help. And, and I think it, it really is uh, a lot to do with these structural factors. These countries are, are simply less threatened uh, than the United States is in, in a lot of these cases. Uh, so I think that, you know, many people are, are concerned uh, by uh, the rise of China and see uh, China as uh, uh, the emergence of China as potentially a near-peer competitor in the future as, as a threat to the United States, and I think there are good reasons to uh, think that it could be a threat. Uh, on the other hand, I think there, there may be an upside, and, th and that is that uh, you know, during the Cold War, I think the United States and the Soviet Union were able to, to work together on, on a lot of these proliferation issues, kind of policing our own spheres of influence. I think uh, the rise of, of Chinese power and the emergence of China as potentially a peer competitor uh, could actually uh, help the proliferation problem. And I think we have seen uh, China uh, get more serious about proliferation over the years. Uh, and I think part of the reason for that is, is it's, it's growing power and it uh, has uh, greater interest now. Uh, bigger sphere of influence than it did in the past. I think as that process continues, it, it may become even more uh, serious about proliferation than it is today. Any other questions? I see all the way in the back there. Hi, Ashley March, Cato Institute. For anyone, I'm just wondering, in retrospect and on balance, um, did France get it right or wrong? Um, yeah, it's, it's an excellent question. I mean, uh, from my point of view, uh, maybe I'm, I'm biased because I live in the United States and I think proliferation everywhere is bad. Um, but, but, but I think they, they got it wrong. 
Um, and so what's interesting, I think, is that, and this is a point I, I make uh, in the book, is that I think a lot of these states, when they provide uh, nuclear assistance, I mean, you know, helping another country acquire nuclear weapons is kind of a permanent solution to, to a temporary problem a lot of the time. So, I mean, countries, I think, are incredibly short-sighted um, making a lot of these decisions. And, and so I think it raises an interesting question about kind of time horizons um, and, and how do countries think about kind of near-term benefits versus long-term costs. Uh, but I think in, in almost all these cases, countries are dealing with kind of an, uh, an imminent uh, strategic, what they see as an imminent strategic crisis, so they're willing to engage in this risky uh, foreign policy behavior. But uh, down the road, they, they end up regretting it. Um, I think probably the best uh, example of this is Soviet assistance to China. Uh, so the Soviet Union helped uh, China with its nuclear program from uh, 1958 to 1960 um, and uh, ended up uh, regretting it. In fact, so much so that only a few years later, they uh, seriously thought about uh, bombing China's nuclear capabilities. Um, actually approached the United States uh, to try to p potentially get a, a joint uh, operation with the United States to, to bomb uh, Chinese facilities or at least to get U.S. permission to uh, not protest if, if they bomb the facilities. Um, so um, I, so I, I do issue a warning in the book that countries considering this in the future should realize that their predecessors ended up uh, regretting it oftentimes and that while it may, might make sense now, uh, you might end up regretting it uh, down the road. Earlier, Mike, on that care for a <laughs> bite at that apple. Well, I just say that it's on. It'll okay. come on. Um, I think the Israel case is a hard one, and I, I think at the end, um, I would probably um, disagree with Matt on this, which is that Israel is in a precarious um, neighborhood, and it's a small country. Right now, it has very, and for a while, it has had extremely capable conventional forces. It didn't always have, um, its ability to defend itself was always not so great, and its ability to defend itself into the into the future was not always so clear. Um, so it's been it, – nuclear weapons have provided the basic value that they, they tend to provide. I, I think that you'd have to go through the counterfactual and say um, if – first of all, you'd have to think about the conventional wars that didn't happen or were won the way they were won. Um, but then from Israel's perspective, you also have to say, well, if, if Israel didn't have nuclear weapons, would Iran not be trying to get them now? Um, and would you want to have Iran, uh, Israel in an arms race with Iran right now trying to, um, to get its capability as Iran did? Now, you can make the case, well, Iran wouldn't be getting nuclear weapons if Israel didn't already have them. You can, I think it's wrong, but you can make that case. But if you didn't want to make that case, um, then the Israeli nuclear weapon looks much better, at least from Israel's perspective. So, I mean, I think nuclear weapons are dangerous, but they also do – obviously extremely dangerous, but they also do bring very significant benefits. And Israel – is, a, I think, potentially a poster child for those benefits, although if you play it out a couple more decades, uh, it may be living in a nuclear neighborhood, in which case it becomes a much harder call. I, I would just echo that and point out that I, I would agree with Charlie and disagree with Matt somewhat that in the time Israel had uh, achieved nuclear capability, it probably needed it, and it probably needed it throughout, although it was never, never clear that it was ever being close to using any of its uh, conventional conflicts. But in the future, it's going to become increasingly more of a burden to Israel. And there's a couple things coming down the pipe. If you saw the NPT review conference uh, final document, so um, Kofi, uh, Kofi Annan, Ban Ki-moon is uh, appointing someone to be a facilitator to look at uh, Israel's nuclear weapons program. In 2012, there'll be this big Middle East conference, which really does a deep dive, all participating states, upon this nuclear weapons uh, and WMD-free zone. 
And Israel is going to either have to uh, be somewhat transparent and, and forthcoming about its capabilities or others will do it for them. This was also seen in uh, the director general of the IAEA released a letter in last April to the members of the Board of Governors of the IAEA asking for any information about past uh, support to Israeli nuclear weapons program and any information about Israel's nuclear program. So there's going to be a lot more transparency about what its capabilities are, what its prospective roles and missions are, whether Israel wants to participate or not. I would also add uh, Avner Cohen, who is sort of the historian of the Israel bomb, has another book coming out which is even more revealing in, uh, in October. So keep your eyes open for that. So I think in, into the future there will be less, uh, less gained by Israel having the bomb than, uh, than, than hiding behind its, the nuclear ambiguity. I think we have time for one more question. So if you've been waiting, right there on the aisle, I saw a hand show, shoot up. Uh, Jeff Gaynor with Council for America. You indicated it's unlikely that nuclear states would provide uh, nuclear weapons or weapons material to terrorist organizations. I just wonder how, what is the most likely manner in which terrorist organizations would acquire nuclear weapons? Is it possibly they would zero in on a weak nuclear state like Pakistan, attempt to take over a state that already has nuclear weapons? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, to... I mean, just a little um, autobiography, I guess. I mean, the reason I decided to, to write the book, actually, is I started graduate school um, two weeks before September 11th. Uh, and so, uh, you know, September 11th happened, and, you know, the question of nuclear terrorism kind of sh uh, shot to the forefront. And so I wanted to, to get leverage on this question. You know, would, would countries provide nuclear assistance to, to terrorists? Um, and we didn't really have any, any evidence to go on. I mean, countries hadn't done it so far. Maybe they could do it in the future. Uh, and so the reason I decided to, to research this book is it was the closest analog we had, that states had provided nuclear assistance to other states time and time and time again. Uh, so maybe by understanding that question, we could get some insight onto uh, whether or, or why uh, they would help uh, terrorists. So again, my conclusion is that I think it's unlikely that they would uh, purposely uh, help terrorists, but it's, it's just speculation. You know, we, we don't have any uh, data to go on. I think it's a reasonable inference from the research I've done. Uh, so given that, then what's the most likely way that, that a terrorist uh, could acquire nuclear weapons? I mean, the other possibilities are that they could um, uh, either uh, get the weapons uh, themselves, you know, a, a terrorist uh, country collapses and they're able to seize the weapons or uh, somehow uh, buy them from, um, you know, some uh, rogue actor w within a state, or that they could somehow uh, assemble them themselves by acquiring materials and, and expertise and, and personnel. Um, so uh, I think it's a judgment call. I, my, my hunch would be it would probably be easier to um, – I, I think they're both un unlikely, actually, and I think I'm – you know, people like Graham Allison at Harvard argue that there's a 50 percent chance there will be a nuclear terrorist attack in the United States in, in 10 years. Uh, or within the next 10 years. And he's been saying that for about eight years now. So I mean, he's, he's, we've got about two years, I guess, to see if he's right. Um, but I think that estimate's much too high. I think, I think while it is a, a major problem, because I think if terrorists acquired nuclear weapons, it's likely they'd use them. So I think we should be devoting significant resources to it. But I think the probabilities are, are actually uh, much lower. Um, I mean, I, I guess if I were uh, forced, I'd, I'd, I'd say it's probably more likely that they'd uh, I don't know, a country like Pakistan would, would collapse and they could uh, seize a weapon rather than building it on their own. I mean, I think the, the uh, obstacles to, to acquiring the weapons or acquiring the material, acquiring people with expertise, assembling them yourselves uh, are pretty high. So I guess my um, principal concern would be kind of a, a state collapse and, and the seizure of a weapon. But I'd, I'd, I know my co-panelists have thought a lot about this question as well, so I'd be interested to hear what they had to say on, on the subject. Care for a... <laughs> um, just briefly, I mean, I think that... Um, if you look back, it's changed probably over time, right? I mean, I think with the end of the Cold War, there was a really major danger 
of, uh, of loose nukes from the former Soviet Union and specifically from within Russia, that's still a danger, but it's greatly reduced. Um, and partly that is a real credit to U.S. nonproliferation policy, the way that that danger has been reduced. But I still – people who follow it don't think it's as low as it should be. Um, and the other prime candidate is Pakistan. So I think you have to you – know, it depends upon the stability of um, the Pakistani government. Um, right now, I guess if I had to bet, I'd bet against – I'd bet the danger is greater from Pakistan than from Russia, which is bad news, not good news. <laughs> I would say, agree with Matt, that if you're going to get a, a complete workable bomb, it's likely to be Pakistan. But there's also, um, as an example, if you saw 60 Minutes this Sunday, there was a uh, unprecedented raid on a facility in South Africa which held about 20 to 25 bombs worth of HEU. And there are something like 30 countries that have at least one bomb's worth of fissile material um, there to varying degrees of security and to varying degrees of protection and, account and accounting, especially on the, uh, on the Russian side where they, to this day, really don't know exactly uh, how much fissile material they ever produced in the Cold War. So um, all of it is at risk, and it should be the single highest priority for the United States to do everything in its power to secure it. And I think given the hard work of the Bush administration uh, to make this a big priority and as well as the Obama administration, they're uh, much, much better off than we were, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, and five years ago. But still, it should, there's, still there's still plenty more to be done. The danger of the falsifiable prediction on the Graham Allison thing. Never put a put a put a measurable uh, prediction. Um, thank you all very much for coming. Let me say before we applaud uh, our authors and commentators. I, I stupidly didn't mention we have books for sale outside, which everyone should purchase several copies of. And uh, I, I, I I firmly uh, uh, admonished Matt beforehand not to go into great detail on the very rigorous quantitative portion of his book for fear of uh, the dimmed lights. Uh, and the numbers uh, glossing over everyone's eyes. For, so for the uh, uh, closet quants in the room, uh, there's a lot of material in there for you as well. Uh, but please join me in thanking uh, our author and commentators for a great talk. Thank you. And we have sandwiches and Diet Cokes upstairs, so please join us. Thank you.